Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, explore human creativity and invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, a vital ingredient in the solutions to all of our problems, so often misunderstood. Little by little, I'm building an archive of valuable stories, experiences, and tips to help you maximize yours. The show is supported by founding sponsor and B Corp, Illustration X. Take a look at their stunning range of illustrators and animators now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, it's by Dirty Freud, who you can listen to on Spotify and all good music streaming services. What I want is a business that's got great debate and it's got you know great points of interest and thought and leadership and that only comes from a diverse range of people you know yeah. different you know and so we don't you know we look at can you do that can you do it and then how do you do it what are you about so i think it's just about you know and i think it's about energy and it's about chemistry above anything else man it's just kind of do I like this individual? Do I think they're interesting? Are they going to push me a bit and challenge me? You know, are they going to build a business in a way that is right for them as well as me? Today I'm joined by Bulletproof Agency founder Gush Munday. Gush joins us to recount what it felt like to move to a racially divided UK at the age of five from Delhi and dealing with that and growing and a little bit of fighting along the way before founding through inspirations of hip-hop and street art, Bulletproof, in a little office in Covent Garden with a fax machine, a telephone and a big set of balls. It's a good one. Strap yourself in and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing, guys? My name is Ben Tallon. This is the Creative Condition Podcast. How are you? I hope you're good. It's been a busy old run with the Ukraine specials as we hit a very sad two-year milestone since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I'd like to just quickly say a massive thank you to everybody who took the time to um, express their feelings about that episode. And it's quite common to not hear from anyone after each of my podcast episodes. And I know as a podcast listener myself that that's kind of the norm and we don't always contact the shows that we listen to and that doesn't mean we're not appreciative of them. But for an episode like this, which was truly heartfelt, which was very moving, as we heard first the story of Olya Protasova and then um, I read my short story on last week's episode, The Hockney Soldier, which was what I felt was the only fitting way to tell the very tragic story of a Ukrainian designer who sold all his art and design books, a massive collection, to a bookshop in Kiev to go and fight in a war, something that we can't relate to in this country, in the UK, at least not the people who were born and raised on this island, because we haven't tasted war. We've been very privileged and very fortunate. So... What that means is we, we see news images and we see um, we hear second-hand accounts and we can express sympathy and we feel empathy. That's been very apparent with what's been going on recently in Gaza um, and in Ukraine. But when 
we see something that truly resonates, that really breaks through that, that barrier, which is what happened when I was sent images by Olya of the book collection of what I came to call the Hockney Soldier. It really hits you in, in the gut and in the heart. And the only way I felt I could creatively respond to that was with a story so thank you to everybody who sent some really lovely and kind heartfelt words because I ended up in discussions with people about how as much as they are very appreciative of the episodes with other designers with artists with illustrators with everybody in between in our industry our beautiful industry that episode just got right to the core of what it is to be human to be resilient to show strength in real times of adversity um so thank you because that meant a lot and i do sit here doing this alone sometimes and putting a lot of time into it so to hear from you guys does mean the world so thank you for taking the time in particular to express um feelings about that episode that meant a lot cheers uh before we carry on big thank you to the founding sponsor of the show illustration x my long-term partner and illustration representative doing a lot of great work in the arts in the illustration game with the likes of the aoi and the saa um illustrationx.com is where you can see all their magical array of international illustrators animators live artists fashion illustrators designers all you name it they're on there go and check it out now illustrationx.com um so where are you at uh, i'm about to talk to nagin Farsad this afternoon for a quite a quite an out there episode nagin is a writer and comedian based in america she's a iranian american and uh, sorry i think that's american iranian my apologies um and she's awesome i've got really into a comedy recently and i was contacted by her about a recent visit to uh, Myco Meditations, which is the longest running legal Silas Sibin retreat in Jamaica. So, to take the science out of it, magic mushrooms. <laughs> and when I was initially contacted, I thought, okay, okay, this is interesting. What's, what's the angle? Can I twist this? And I very much could. When you start digging down into, um, I don't know whether it's fungi or fungi. I'm going to find out on the episode. The Americans call it fungi. And if you've seen Fabulous Fungi slash Fungi on Netflix, it's amazing. And if you haven't, watch it. But when I watched that stuff and started to learn about all things psychedelic and mushrooms and creativity and mental health, I was somewhat shell-shocked and, and in awe. So I uh, threw myself at this opportunity and I'm going to be talking to Nagin and Justin Townsend, who is the CEO and head facilitator of Micro Meditations. And we're going to be getting into some really deep shit, so look out for that one that's coming up. Um, and... Yeah, that's where we're at. There's loads of cool stuff coming up. We've got the BDF boys coming up, Luke Tong and Daniel Alcorn. Who else we got coming up? We've got Ty Glover talking about neuro-linguistic programming and neuro-creative programming. And that, again, is a massively deep one and so many cool stuff coming up. I'm trying to balance people in our lovely creative industry and people from outside who can complement that with... Um, psychedelic psychology neuroscience i'm really loving all that side of it at the moment so bringing you more episodes along those lines cool stuff lined up so yeah i'm not going to ramble too much longer today i'm talking to the brilliant gush Monday. so if you've heard gush around 
I also recommend going and listening to Katie Callan's interview on the Creative Boom Pop podcast with Gush. And those guys had a really kind of flowing, informal conversation, getting deep into hip hop and dance crews and all that stuff. So it does, you know, I like to try and look around and see who's done what and go a different way with my podcasts. And certainly being a friend of Katie's, uh, we, we, we have a, a lovely mutual respect about trying not to tread on each other's toes in terms of what we're doing with a certain guest because what you find is, you know, people have got stuff to talk about at certain times because they've got something coming out or they're, they're doing the rounds in PR. So you often get these really cool guests that neither of us want to say no to. So it's kind of nice. We check in every now and again and kind of go, okay, cool, they've had that conversation. How can I build on that and go a different way and provide two very different interviews that are both well worth listening to? So go and check out Katie's interview on the Creative Boom podcast because it's a, it's a cracker. But I wanted to get, I wanted to go further back with Gush today and talk about what it felt like to move here to the UK from Delhi at a time in this country when things were very racially divided. Now, I'm not going to be as confident as to say things have gotten better. In some ways they have, but as Gush will say today, it's just different. And there's a lot of kind of veiled discrimination and, and uh, you know, racism, let's say it how it is, that goes on. But what Gush had to fight through is obscene. And for those of you who remember back on the episode I had with uh, Adelaide Damoa, which is incredibly powerful, Adelaide had to suffer some horrific racist bullying in her school in the 80s when she moved to London with uh, parents from Ghana, which was um, once upon a time known as the British Gold Coast during colonial times, which we get deep into in the podcast. Um, but it certainly has echoes of that. And it's just heartbreaking to think that, you know, people are still suffering in that way. But certainly the full frontal nature of it back then in the 70s and the 80s and the kind of horrible overt racists who would just attack people for looking a certain way. And it's not that that's disappeared, but back then I think it was really kind of, you know, it was accepted way too easily by people because they were, let's face it, some of these people are you know they're they're hard cases they're skinheads and and there are certain types of people and don't get me wrong that is not a slight on skinheads because actually there's a lot of um, cool stuff within that subculture you only have to go and look at the work of owen harvey that's not a generalization i think with any group of people you cannot generalize you can't group a certain culture and just demonize it we see it all too often particularly in politics where they'll just sling the mud at a certain group to score political points and just drag everyone in with it and it's, it's horrific so that's not a knock on skinheads I used to rock around with the skinhead myself for the longest time because my eyes really crap and it's kind of the easiest option but my point is that that particular those particular horrible blatant proud racists the sort of BMP back in the day and all that horrific so to think of kids growing up and having to deal with that if you move to a, a new country from somewhere like delhi it, this that uh, the reason i'm telling you that is it's a real indication of the balls the spirit the talent and the bravery of gush monday and that's all coming up in this interview so i was very happy to have this conversation and i wanted to really get into gush's mind because his creativity and his love of art and his the joy and belonging he found in hip-hop it all makes for a cracking conversation so i think you're really going to enjoy this one today a little bit of housekeeping the creative condition book i have moved the release date to april the 11th long story short 
it made more sense to bring out on that date to tie it in with launches to make sure that the lovely Kickstarter people who made the book possible get their copy of the book ahead of the general release and it's also after I come back from my live interview with Stefan Sagmeister that's coming up at Off Festival Barcelona on April 5th 2024 so coming out April 11th I'll be a pre-order link before too long very excited about this it's arriving from the printers on Friday very very exciting um i think that's about it for the housekeeping uh get in touch if you want any updates on the book any information give us your feedback hello at bantalan.com please do review subscribe share the podcast it massively helps and i know that i rattle that off every episode but when people go and do it it really just helps to build that creativity um credibility and get people you know excited about the show and buying into the the credibility of what i'm trying to do here so thank you for listening. Thank you to Illustration X, a sponsor. I bring you right now, Gush Monday, founder of Bulletproof. Enjoy. I was five when I left Delhi, right? And so I remember I remember it being I, I remember it being very warm. And I remember it being a very innocent time, you know, and a and a and a kind of um I was a bit I was a bit naughty as a kid, you know, just but not not in a um you know, not not in any great infamy, but you know, I was just kind of, you know, I, my mum told me a story of how I um, there was a there was a a person begging on the streets, you know, and uh, I, I I took my shirt off and gave him my shirt from my from my school uniform, you know, and um, I came home without a shirt, and she was like, she was you know she went crazy, you know, asking about that, and I was like, well, he had nothing, so I gave him my shirt, you know, and. She was like, why, you know, and I remember my dad, my dad being real disciplinarian who, for the first time ever, wasn't annoyed. He was just sort of laughing and going, can't believe you, you know, you you did that, you, you know, and so things like that. I remember, I remember cows roaming, you know, in like, like you do in many parts of India. And I, I remember going out for walks with the family, you know, there's this, there's this beautiful period, um, you know, dusk, we call it sham. You know, and Sham is this lovely period, you know, just before night kind of sets in and the sun is setting and it's it's dusky. And I, I remember all the noises and the smells, you know, this kind of very visceral sort of sense. And I remember a great community of people. We kind of knew everyone. You know, my family knew everyone. So when we walked down the street, you know, my dad would say hi to this guy that fixed cars and that guy who was selling this particular type of food or, you know, and so... It's a real sense of, of, of community. And we lived, we lived in a, you know, a fairly big house. I remember it being being quite large, you know, and very, very square. You know, it wasn't Victorian or Edwardian or anything, you know, but it was just quite, it was just quite square. And I remember there being a big, a big yard. And we had a we had a rooftop. And I remember going out to the rooftop and seeing, I, I could see, you know, you'd see birds of prey, which is quite quite usual but for me being a kid I love that you know and I was fascinated with them you know and so um I just remember it being a really you know quite enchanting time you know quite a lovely time um which changed a few years you know a few years late you know a few years later yeah mm-hmm. and so what what triggered the move to the UK uh the move the move was triggered really by um uh the great the great British press <laughs> you know in India sort of talking about how there's a, a shortage of um, doctors and nurses and medical staff, and we need we need more of that, and we we you know we value it and we pay very well for it and look after um, families over there. And my father had a doctorate, and so 
you know, the pay he was offered and uh, the story he was sold was, uh, the dream he was sold was too good to, to pass up on. And, he, and like, I think like every individual, you know, that universal truth of wanting to do better for your family, he saw it as a, a way of doing better, you know, mm. so... Um, that was the reason we 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 left. It was on this promise of a better life, essentially. Yeah, you know, here in the UK, um, which which didn't turn out to be the case, really. Yeah. So, what did that look like? Because that must have. I mean, you mentioned there that lovely community, and and you know that this it's we need that as human beings. Yeah, so we to, do. So to yeah. go from that, just from listening to previous stories that you've told, yeah, is it safe to say that that was? What, something com completely different when you hit, when you arrived here. Yeah, man, and I couldn't process it, you know, because as a as a kid of five, you know, it's like today there there are all sorts of ways of speaking to children and you, you know and, and understanding and learning, and I think that's great. But back then, I I couldn't understand, you know. So we weren't given a choice, you know. So my dad was like, right, we are we're moving, you know. It's not like today where I I would sit down with my children. I say, look, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Ask, you know you know, gather their opinion. It was, we're moving, right? So, uh, okay, cool, so we're moving. And then it was this, the, so first of all, it was the the sense of it being very cold, right? I didn't own a coat, you know, I didn't own a coat, man. I, did, you know, I didn't know what a coat was, you know? And so, you know, um, so that, first of all, it was that, it was the climate was very, very different. Then I'm seeing all these strange place people and I, we don't fit in at all. You know, I don't see anyone who looks like me, you know, it's very, you know, and so, there's a sense of just being a complete stranger, you know. Then there's the language, right? I don't speak English. No, I'm speaking five. I'm speaking four dialects, you know, um, Indian um, dialects, but I'm but I don't speak English, you know. So I can't I can't communicate, you know, you know, at, at all, you know. I can't read the language. I can't write the language. I can't speak it. Um, uh, and then, you know, and then it, and then it just kind of got worse from there. You know, we went from uh, a large house with a, a, a bit of a roof terrace, you know, in quite an industrial part of Punjab. Don't get me wrong. You know, we're not talking about this is not Beverly Hills, man. You know, <laughs> but, you know, from uh, and then we lived in a room, you know, we're living in a four of us are living in a room. My sister was just was just born. She was six months old, if that. So we went from living in a four five bedroom house with gardens and community and warmth to um living in a room you know four of us in in one room a cot you know a bed for my mum and dad that and then a, a small bed for me you know and so and again I didn't question it I was just kind of, I just didn't I wasn't really allowed to question it you know and uh, I just had to kind of deal with it you know and uh, my my grandparents lived next door in the next house they lived in a room in the next house yeah you know, and that brought me a great amount of um, solace. You know, I love that. I love my granddad. You know, I love going to see him and um, just just chat with him. And, you know, uh, we'd open a can of Coke together. You know, that was his that was his thing with me, you know, and um, just talk. And I, and I loved that. You know, I loved him dearly, you know. And so, um, yeah, it was a very, it was a very strange feeling of feeling so inclusive and warm and kind of, you know, together and happy. You know, I would just, you know, to being quite unhappy and quite unsure, uncertain, you know, about what what's going on, you know, and um, like I say, not not being able to communicate, you know, was really, yeah, was really, you know, so um, yeah.
Yeah, so I'm, and you know, I love this. The, the, you know, I've heard you describe yourself as cocky, and I like the naughty kid aspect. Yeah, what happened to that guy in this environment? Because that must have been, you know, without the outlet, without the verbal skills, and without the familiarity. What, I mean, did you go inside yourself? Did you? What? I mean, how did you adapt? No, I was still, I was still trying to get on with people, you know, and you know, so I was still trying to be outgoing and happy and smiley and kind of, you know, trying to communicate and and stuff like that. But it was just getting me nowhere, you know. And people just weren't open to it, you know. It's a very different culture here, you know, very different, you know. And so, um, and at first, I just, you know, I couldn't understand it, you know. And then as I got older, because it's different, right? So as I, as I got older and I could speak English and I, I had no choice, you know, and I had to learn it and uh, that's obviously right, you know, I'm cool with that. But it, it, start, it started to manifest itself quite negatively. You know, I think the, the cheekiness, you know, uh, made way for, you know, um, I think, I think uh, you know, a bit, a bit more spikiness, you know, um, you know, a bit more attitude. You know, and uh, and then that eventually led to being, you know, a bit of a chip on the shoulder, you know, as I got into my teenage years, you know. But um, but yeah, there, there, there were loads of things, man. And it was also, I think it was a time and place, you know, um, in the UK, we were going through a great amount of change, you know, a great amount of political and social unrest, you know, uh, here, you know. Um, and, you know, people didn't want immigrants in the UK. You know, made it very clear, you know, and I think today... You know, not a lot's changed, but I think the way it's the way that it's voiced is very different, you know. And you know, whereas then it was very, you know, and I almost prefer the way it was actually. I almost prefer the way, you know, I was told, you know, that I didn't belong. You know, I you know, I sort of at least that's honest, you know, I can deal with that, you know. And so there was that as well, you know, and that that for a young kid is just really difficult to grasp, you know. It's the, and I couldn't talk to my parents, I don't have the relationship, I didn't have the relationship. With my mother and father um that my children do with me which is very open and honest and we can talk about anything you know and um i didn't have that you know and i didn't have other people i could talk to there wasn't you know elders you know within the community that i could i could speak to i didn't want to burden my grandfather my grandmother with it you know i didn't want to do that I didn't feel they would understand and i didn't want to you know so i felt sort of ashamed of it really you know and um, and I kind of felt like I had to make it work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, there was a lot of that on it. You had a horrible incident when you got in a fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you mind just touching upon that? Yeah, sure. So I'd, you know, like I said, I'd always been a bit cheeky. I'd always been a bit, you know, a bit of a joker, you know, but there was no malice. There was never any malice, you know, in, in, in who I was and what I did, you know, and stuff. But, but, but as I got older and, um, I became more self-aware you know, uh, I started to understand what racism was, you know, and I, you know, and, and it started with people kind of just talking about me and, you know, calling me names and stuff like that. And I kind of just dealt with it, you know, um, became somewhat introverted in a way, you know, but I wouldn't let them do that. I'm too proud for that, you know. And so, and then it started getting a bit physical, you know, every now and then, you know, I'd sort of walk through, you know, a corridor at school and I'd get barged, you know, and, um, and I just, you know, I just can't, I knew what it was. I knew, I knew it was malicious, but I didn't, I didn't really, um, I didn't really pick up on it. I didn't do anything about it, you know. And then one, one day I was just, I was just walking home from school and there was uh, a couple of kids who were, uh, I think two or three years older than me. 
and it was sitting on a wall uh, quite near where I live now, actually, quite near where I live now. And it was it was a sort of shortcut through um, a, a graveyard um, near, near where I live. And I was walking home and they saw me and um, I knew it was coming. You know, you just kind of know. And it's like it's that thing where you go, I can't back out of this. You know, there's only one way in, there's one way out unless I turn around and run. And I don't do that. I've never done that. You know, uh, it's something I never do even today, you know. And so. I just carried on walking and hoping it wasn't. And they, they went to sort of kick me, you know, and um, I just sort of pushed them, you know, pushed them away because they were quite high up on a, on this wall. And then one of them, one of them spat on me, you know, and it's the first time that ever happened. And I, I felt that and I just became incensed. You know, it just, you know, this rage just, just mm -hmm. took over me. And I remember pulling them down, one of them down from the, from the wall um, and then just kind of a flurry of sort of kicks and punches and, you, you know, and there wasn't a lot really, you know, they talk about kind of seeing red or, you know, and it was, it was like that. It was like that. And, it, you know, it felt like 10 minutes. It was probably about 20 seconds, you know, but it was the first time I'd fought back, you know, and, uh, and what I know today is adrenaline, you know, it was just, it was coursing through me, you know, and the other kid ran off. Um, the one I was sort of hitting and, you know, on top of uh, got up and he sort of went the other, another way. And I just, and I ran home. I ran home. You know, I kind of ran home thinking they're going to come for me again, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, they know where I live and all this. It's, it's just these weird things sort of rushing through your head, you know. Got home and I remember my heart just beating out of my, you know, just just yeah. beating, you know, out of my ribs, right? And I just thought, and that was the first time it happened. And then that realisation that actually, um, I, I don't have to put up with this, you know, and um, from being quite sort of scared and sort of, you know, uh, vulnerable to being, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have this anymore kind of thing. That was a real realisation. So I couldn't tell anyone, you know, I didn't feel like I could tell anyone, you know, and so I just had to live with it, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and even my friends, most of my friends were, were white they didn't understand they didn't you know the, the area i was in was predominantly a white um area right so they they're not going to understand you know at that at that age um and so and i was still forging relationships with them anyway you know still quite new in you know so and that was it it was a real turning point you know um yeah the, the, the reason i ask is because you know it, it's i'm fascinated by adversity and and, yeah. the effect, and the effect the the things that that draws from people that yeah. that, that almost weaponize creativity and, and this isn't about making art that i'm talking about i'm talking about the way you see the world and the way you carry yeah. yourself and how you adapt to broader spectrum of things in life you know because there's, there's a great story by um chuck palanyok who wrote fight club and he talks about how up until a, an incident where he was randomly attacked on a bike when he was on his bike and he got punched yeah. in the head it was up until that point, he was a bad Stephen King. And he said it was literally, up, from that moment forward, he started to write in the stripped back, punchy prose that, yeah. that his work is known for today. And I think I think that's fascinating that those kind of horrible things that no one should have to go through in life do have this way of taking you somewhere else. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, you know, it's, it's changed over time, obviously, you know, you, you know, yeah. as, you, as you grow, as a, you know, as an, in, as an individual, you know, it manifests itself differently. You know, when I was, when I was younger, it was just about fighting, you know, it was about fighting people and, 
you know, you know, uh, uh, an argument and what have you. I think as I got older and as I started the business, you know, um, and the family, it's about it's about never backing down, right? It's about not accepting, um, uh, not not conforming, you know, just because someone says that is how it should be. It's it's questioning that, you know. And I have this, I have this thing where I am, you know, I'm I'll fight, you know. So it, it's a it's not a physical manifestation now. It's you know, it's more emotional and mental now, you know. So I'll fight, you know. It's like if you say no, I can't do it. I'll be like, no, 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 man, I can't. There's, there's no way I can't do this, right? So, and it's that, and I'm just going to try harder. I just try harder than anyone else you know that I know. I just try, you know, to get to get it done. So it manifests itself now in this kind of, this sort of belief, this kind of unwavering, you know, just I need to do this. I can't take no for it. There's too many people that depend on me. There's too many people I can't let down. You know, I've got. Uh, and so for me now, it's very much about about that, you know, not accepting the norm, you know, not accepting the status quo. Yeah. You know, and this is how things have to be done. I'm just like, nah, you know, yeah. just, it's not it's not about that, you know, and it could be it, it's through everything. You know, I really I really sort of thought about that. And it is it's through everything I do, you know, and um, uh, it could be something to do with my, my kids at school. It could be something to do with a planning application that I'm doing for my house. It could be something work related. It could be a client that I want to land and they're saying, no, you know, we don't need to, you know, I'm like, I don't want to take that as a, as an answer, you know? So it's that, it's that constant kind of push, you know, that, that it gives me, you know, and I can do that because I've got that self-belief now and the belief in my team, the team give me that belief the family give me that belief you yeah. know so you know that's where it comes from now it's not hollow like it once was you know that was yeah. just me as a kid kind of going no i just got to do this now it's kind of built on foundation yeah and what were you what, what was your kind of entry point to to hip-hop like how do you discover hip-hop because i'm quite i'm completely naive with hip-hop and yeah i yeah. love it and what and i've i've got a book due out soon and there's a chapter on adversity and i've opened up with the kind of manifestation of hip hop in the seventies in New York through the, yeah. you know, the financial crash and the, the famous story with DJ Cool Herc. And I just, oh, yeah. that's spellbinding to me. And it's that, yeah, that scarcity and that collective voice. I, I mean, first of all, so where did you come across it? And at what point, if you did, did you, did you find a channel for, you know, for, for, I guess for you, for, for what you experienced? Yeah, so so I got so I got so the school I was at, I got expelled from. Um, got into a fight at school and got expelled from that school. And then I suddenly went from a school that was predominantly white to a school that was very racially mixed, you know. Um, and you know, a lot of Indian, Pakistani, a lot of um, you know, West African and um, you know, East African kids uh, and Caribbean kids. And suddenly we're all in this kind of melting pot, you know. And it was there where I first about 13 and I first you know I first heard you know a, a bit of a bit of hip-hop here and there and it was kind of very basic stuff but I knew I loved it so it was the music I fell in love with to start with it was the rap element of hip-hop that I fell in love with to start with you know it was just this you know hearing hearing these lyricists and just going I love that man that's cool and then just people swearing on a track you know I was just like that's cool you know I, li I like that yeah. You know, and so the cool Herc thing, you know, I, that came to me uh, quite a few years later, you know, when I s became quite serious about it. But to start with, it was just the music that I loved. And then it was the dancing. Right. So I loved that. And I had a little crew of us and we'd, you know, we'd body pop and we'd do a bit of breaking and stuff like that, you know. And then slowly, slowly, I started to hear about graph, you know, and because I'm very artistically driven, 
I started to really get into graffiti art. So I was probably 15 by now. And I sort of left the dancing, loved the music, but that was going on in the background. And I started to uh, take up graffiti and become very, very interested in the letter form, you know, and all these amazing artists that, that were there. Um, and so I did that. And then a documentary came out called Style Wars, you know, which is which is um, a life-changing documentary for me when I saw it, you know, and, you know, it's the old days of the VHS video play and I recorded it and then I paused it and then I just, you know, that that changed everything for me. So, sort of, you know, so, so graffiti for me was the element within hip hop that changed my whole being, you know, mm. and so, and, I, and then I just practiced that. I was never a tagger. I never used to tag, but I, I was into these beautiful pieces, you know, or what I thought was, beautiful art you know so that was the thing for me so it was the music that, that trapped me initially and I still love uh, rap today I still love it today uh, and I follow you know a lot of it um, and then it was you know a bit of the dancing that sort of faded and then the artwork really the sort of street art that just stuck with me you know and um, uh, and, and always has and that 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 is the reason I set up Bulletproof you know because of that really and the more time I put into that the less time I put into school you know, and so um, I was. It was. I was always ever really going to be, you know, a, a street artist or something. I was only ever going to follow art, really, much to my parents' um, dismay. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I was only really going to do that. You know, so uh, yeah. So it was kind of. I, I don't think I could exist without that. You know, without that mm. element. Uh, I still. Love, I still love it. There's something beautiful about that culture within the culture as well. Like you mentioned, the visual culture there and the street art. Yeah. I've got friends who grew up skating on shitty street corners in Blackpool yeah, yeah. Who, who got into design through the, the you know, the, the clothing and everything else that comes with that. And I, I, had, I had Don Letts on the show going back a little, a few years now. Oh, yeah. And Don said to me that when his white mates started picking up guitars, he picked up a Super 8 camera and that was his yeah. thing. And what he adored about the punk scene was that DIY sentimentality where you could, you could do it. There was, that it was, it was absolutely celebrated within the culture. Um, and I think that's echoed in hip hop, is it not? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. For me, for me, the thing with hip hop was that it, there was no judgment. It was it was based around your skills. You know, your skills where it comes to dancing or, you know, what 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 lyrics you've got or what you can do on a wall or a canvas. You know, that was that was a thing. So for me, it was about community. Suddenly I was finding other people that I had a connection with in terms of the art that I wouldn't have a connection with anywhere, you know, in 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 any other sense. And then actually I found out that we were very similar. We were just very different. We'd come from a very similar background. You know, there'd been, you know, we're, we're kind of only good at this. You know, there, there's usually some kind of uh, adversity in our backgrounds. You know, generally money isn't abundant. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's these similarities because you go, I don't look like you. I don't sound like you, but we, we love the same thing. Yeah. So therefore we are, we are, we are kin through that. And then you actually find, actually, it's not that unusual, actually, if you start to, you know, so it was a community, I think, that's the real, that the, that's the, the, the thing that drew me to it, you know, and kept me there, you know, and, and then just meeting writers from all different walks of life, all different races, all different ages, and suddenly going, and then also realizing that this is a global thing, you know, this isn't just, you know, kids like me and where we live, it's like all over the world, you know, and, and it still is, you know, and, uh, and then it's the power of art, you know, and it's the release of art, which I think is massively important, you know. In, yeah. in, I'm a great believer in that, you know, that the, yeah. the power of art 
whatever it is, whatever your creative craft is, whether it's cooking, dancing, whether it's making music, creating <clears throat> paintings or whatever that is, you know, um, think is incredibly important. And um, yeah, you know, you know, um, very human, you know, it's like, you know, I talk about that a lot, actually, you know, that, that self-expression through art, you know, or artistry, uh, which is primal, you know, it's yes. actually how, you know, we, we would paint, you know, we were painting before we were communicating and dancing and, you know, we were dancing and painting before we could talk, yeah. you know, as, as human beings, you know, and so, you know, and there are, you know, there are all these amazing civilizations that put artists, you know, above, you know, or at the same level as philosophers and scholars, you know, because art was that important to those communities then that it's sort of lost now, you know. And and again, I understood that later on, you know, but um, you, when you understand the importance of, you know, of art and creativity and expression, you, you, you understand that it's at the core of being human, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Well, we're very tribal creatures, and and, yeah, and and those 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 objects of affection and those passions are whole they're glue for life, really. And yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. I'm like, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and list mine because because I'm, I'm fortunate enough to feel it in many many ways. But this industry is one of them, and I'll never forget that first day of walking into art college, having not got along with school for the yeah. same reasons like probably 90 percent of people in our industry sadly i think it's a failing of the education system that that's the case yeah will be familiar with you know the well, there are many reasons for that um but there's there's a one of your kind of mantras for bullet for bulletproof that i love was the hustle and heart which i yes. think is fantastic is it safe to say that that was right there and that came right out of you in those formative times it's always been there it's always, it's, I think when you're an immigrant, you have to hustle. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that, you know, but, that, but that's, that's where it came from, you know? And so you don't have the advantages and, um, you know, of, of your parents' support and, you know, and, and money. And so you've got to hustle, you know, and then you life is a hustle, man. It, it really is, you know, whether you're, it's actually a street hustle or you're just kind of trying to make ends meet, whatever, whatever that is. But yeah, it's, it's born from there. You know, it's that, you know, I think for me, it was that immigrant mentality and hard work, you know, and I think, honestly, hard, hard work and hustle is a difficult combination to be, yeah. you know, you know, and so, yeah, that, that's where it comes from. Heart is about doing things honestly and doing things that are fulfilling and purposeful, you know, and I've always believed in that, you know, always, you know, and so we try and do things here with purpose, with meaning and being honest and transparent with ourselves and our team. You know, that's just because yeah. that's how I'd like everyone to. That's how I want people to treat me. You know, I, I want to treat people the same. It's it's massively important to me. Yeah, and I'm and I'm interested in. I love this story about getting a room in Covent Garden. You know, and yeah. despite being a room, there's there's something lovely about the perception of that, and and that kind of you know, you you spoke of it being the place to be because all the agencies were there, so you wanted to be a part of that when you were getting started. And yeah. I'm not thinking it was three of you to begin with. Well, it was actually it was actually me to begin with in a room. Yeah, and so the the interesting with Covent Garden, right, is um, when I when I was about fourteen, I used to I used to uh, leave home and um, get on a tube and get up to Covent Garden because that's where there was a lot of graph going on, and it's really interesting, right? That just recently I was having I was having lunch with um, a, a good friend, David Samuel, uh, who owns a brilliant agency called Rare Kind. And um, 
there was an artist that I used to love. So there, there, was, a, there was a crew called the Chrome Angels. And they were, in a time and place in London, they were the crew. They were the shit. They were, they were doing stuff on walls that I couldn't even comprehend. I couldn't fathom, you know. And it was all in Covent Garden. So I used to sneak up to Covent Garden with a few mates. And one time we were there, and they were actually spraying while we were there. And there used to be this big, tall, black kid called Pride, right? And he was the king of London. That was the title, right? And he was there. And there's a very famous, um, another artist called Mode 2. And Mode is, again, you know, one of the OGs, you know, and just in incredible, incredible, right? And they were painting. And as they were painting, Pride turned around and looked at me. And I was there, like, and I just, we caught eyes. And he was... He was massive. He was massive. You know, I was 40. He was massive. He looked at me. And weirdly, I had lunch with him about three or four weeks ago because my mate David met up with him. And he's called Errol. And I never knew this, right? And he is the loveliest man. And he's still a man mountain. So I was right then, right? But, and I told him that. And and it was weird. During that conversation, it sort of, it sort of came out that it's no mistake that we're in Covent Garden. It's kind of where I used to come for you know, my creative hit, you know, and inspiration. And it came from those guys. And then as I, and I think as a result of that, I'd walk around here more and see these creative shops and agencies. And as I grew up old, you know, as I grew older and, you know, was hunting records and stuff like that in and around Covent Garden and Soho, this is where we we came to be, you know? And so, yeah, so I set up by myself in Betterton Street um, with a, you know, a phone and a fax and a massive screen, you know, that cost me thousands of pounds and a, and a, and a you know, and a Mac, which is less powerful than my iPhone, yeah. you know, by, <laughs> by a long, long way, man, you know. Uh, so I set up there and I set up in a, in a place called Garden Studios, which had a really good address. It had an amazing address, Betterton Street. You know, I'm a really big believer in that, you know, a really big believer in having a really good address, you know. It's a sort of madmen kind of mentality. Yeah. Which you get to know then, I know now, you know. Um, and then, yeah, and basically I just, you know, I, I got work anywhere I could, you know, called people up, tested them again, not taking no for an answer. And then one of the first big gigs I got was a pitch on um, a bit of advertising, actually. And because I've studied graphic design and advertising, I, I got my old mate, Johnny Stewart, to uh, help me crack the brief, you know. And we worked all weekend because he was he had a very successful sort of career. He was having a good, successful career in advertising but hated it. And yeah. I knew, that. I knew that. And I'm also quite persuasive. So I said, look, man, help me crack this brief and let's see what we, what we get. And we pitched it to the, to the company and we won. And I just said, look, man, come and, come and join, you know, a business. I'll give you a share of the business worth nothing. And if we make something of it is, and we still, you know, for, for about, for about 16, 17 years, we didn't have a contract between us. It was a handshake and a promise. And that's really what it was. But, you know, I'm a great believer in you keeping your word, you know. And so we have that now purely because of the size of the business. But, yeah, that's how it started, man. Yeah, you know, just a, a room in Covent Garden. Yeah. And it was it Diana you brought in? Yeah. So 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 Johnny and I uh, were together. And then our first designer was a was was Diana Yo. Yeah. So a yeah. Singaporean uh, living in London who was who was just incredible, you know, um, a brilliant talent, lovely individual, you, you know, um, worked all the hours with us, you know, and we built this thing called Bulletproof. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and and and, and I, you know, I, I think it was on the My Life and Design. You mentioned that she didn't fit the Great British Designer mold, which no. you know, when then when you look at that, you've got th some really valuable things there. So you've got the kind of the horrible things you suffered, the discrimination. Yeah. You've got the the difference, and I don't know whether Diana suffered that too, but in some way, shape, or form, there's difference there. And then the dissatisfaction with Johnny, and I think they're really powerful when you put them together. Um, yeah, you know. and I think that's still that's still in that business today. You know that kind of that whole, you know, sort of you know, being being a bit kind of against the establishment. You know that that's the rule, and we're just not going to follow that. You know, um, so we we still, you know, and I think that part of the reason for our growth is that we want to prove at scale that there's another way of doing things than this kind of corporate way of doing everything. You know, and I think you can do that with a twenty man agency. But I think it's, I think it has more power and more sway if there's 350 of you, yeah. you know, with eight offices globally, you know, then that's that's a really powerful point, you know. And so I think that's part of the reason we're, we're driven like that is because we don't want to conform to the, you know, to the the kind of corporate, you know, ways of being. Because again, that's been drummed into me since I was a, a kid, you mm -hmm. know, uh, living here, that you can't do this, you've got to do that. And it's just that whole never fitting in, never fitting in, with society and the way things are, then being asked to do that is like, what? Why? You know, I'm. It, it never worked before. Why would it work now? Why would I conform now? You know, yeah. when I know who I am, I know what I'm about. You know, and I can change. I just don't want it. I just don't want to be that. You know, I'm happy being where I am. I've got. I've proved it in a business that is of a size and scale now, where we're probably the largest independent branding agency in the world. You know, and so it's going. It's going well. We're making money. People are happy. People are inspired. They're motivated. You know, the work is better than ever. Why would I change? You know. Yeah. You know. How? So I, I did a talk at Bulletproof going back about four years. Yeah. And I'm friends with Simon Dixon at Dixon Baxi. Yeah, and sure. Those two agencies, I think, uh, I, I come away from there. I've been freelance for fifteen years now, and I come yeah. away from those agencies just uh, illuminated because the, the 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 sense of energy within within the, those walls captures everything that you've just described oh thank you man how do you is it a recruitment thing you know when you take people on is it a culture that you foster and and and, and how do you maintain that you know you mentioned at scale there how do you because diversity is a massive thing and i know you're really yeah. big on on diversity and, and yeah, it, when it comes to creativity you, you have to be because it's built on it isn't it so I guess my question is, you know, is it is it a recruitment thing? Do you do you look for personalities when you're bringing people through the door? You know, how do you maintain that energy and that wonderful, you know, ability to to work with the biggest clients in the world, but also to feel like you're at art college? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I look for I look for two things in the business. I look for enhancers or game changers, right? And I look for people that are going to enhance our business, our culture, our way of being. Or I'll look for people who are going to kick it around and make it something even better, right? And bring there. And for me, it's about, by the time I meet people now, it's really about what their contribution is going to be outside of them being able to do the job, as it were. Yeah. You know, so right now, you know, so so when I when I meet um, individuals now, it's, it's really to do with, uh, my team already vetted them. We know they can do it. So now it's about what do you bring outside of the ability to do that? 
you know, what's what's your background? You know, I always ask people about their background, their interests. I always ask about family. I always I always ask about what's the ambition, what's the what's the hope. You know, where, you know, where is that from? What are you doing outside of work? You know, it's like, where are you eating? What are you reading? You know, where, where, you know, what drives you? You know, not out, you know, what are the what are the pressure points? What are the passion points? You know, so because and the reason I do that is because what I want is a business that's got great debate and it's got, you know, great points of interest and thought and leadership. And that only comes from a diverse range of people, you know, yeah. different. You know, and so we don't, you know, we look at, can you do that? Can you do it? And then how do you do it? What are you about? So I think it's just about, you know, and I think it's about energy and it's about chemistry above anything else, man. It's just kind of, do I like this individual? Do I think they're interesting? Are they going to push me a bit and challenge me? You know, are they going to build a business in a way that is right for them as well as me? You know, and so, because that's what it's about now. You know, long gone are the days where, I influence everything in a business. That, those are those are long gone, you know. And so, I really look for that that those people that have got something interesting to to say. And again, I do ask about what they've been through, what they're going through, you know. Um, and I think HR makes it harder and harder for me to do that now, you know. But I, I am because I'm genuinely I love people, you know. I'm genuinely interested in your story, your yeah. your background, how you achieved what you achieved, how you got here. You know, what What do you follow? What is your, you know, it's like, yeah. so I try and ask questions to sort of find those interesting and relatable um, traits and interests, you know, that I think can inspire a team, can motivate a team, can build our culture, yeah. you know, can enrich that. So that's what I do, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything that you're selling as a business to put it in clinical terms is an extension of self isn't it is creativity is very much the lived experience it's your interpretation and i guess regurgitation of the world around you that lived experience and if you can't celebrate that then what good are technical skills i mean they they what you get there is homogenization otherwise yes exactly that but you know we are we are a community you know bulletproof is a community like all all great businesses should be it's it's really a community of of um, like-minded and and differentiated people mm. that, that's what it is you know so I, I like that you know I want to hear a difference in the way that you um that you've lived something you know you've experienced something you know it's important to me otherwise how do I grow how yeah. do I learn about what's what's going on you know I know so much that's it I only know so much you know so I need people to help you know so we're we're a community Whereas, you know, as much as we are an agency, yeah, you know, I think, and I think that, and there's no judgment on that, you know, so it, it's not, it's not political, we're not religious, it's just about understanding and accepting people as their, their kind of true, brilliant selves, you know, um, yeah. and then enhancing that, you know, so we've all got, listen, we've all got strengths and weaknesses, that's the thing. It's not about that. It's about really amplifying your strengths, you know, and then together we can make up for somebody, you know, we can learn to to address the weaknesses or we can support that. But it's about together being something unique and, you know, and, and amazing and creative. And, you know, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And you, am I right in thinking you're involved with Norwich University as well? Yes. Yeah, so I, so we, with Norwich, we've we've got a great um, connection with a few universities, but Norwich in particular for me. Uh, and I was very very fortunate last year to be made honorary professor 
you know, at uh, at Norwich. And, and you know, again, what, what we do there is we go down and we we you know every every few years go down and we we meet with the students and we we basically talk about our industry and talk about how re really amazing it is, you know, and um, that we need and what what we're looking for in terms of um, you know talent. You know, because it's very different, right? In any business, you recruit talent or you recruit, um, you know, uh, experience. And those two are very different things. So we talk to students about what we're looking for, which is generally, you know, great, great ideas and um, amazing attitude, you know, is, is what we need. You know, we need that excitement and exuberance and, you know, and, and all of that. And that kind of naivety, which we love, that we can shape and we can mould. So, yeah, we do a lot. And then we, and then we review their portfolios and give kind of advice as to what we would you know how they could shape it you know and so it's a very hands-on approach um and yeah it's about encouraging them to you know to to keep invested and um yeah keep them keep them interested in this industry which is a which is a wonderful industry really yeah and 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 is occasionally challenged you know the whole thing about costs you know, valuing courses and and the, the old Mickey Mouse course thing it infuriates me, and I'm not going to get into that because it starts getting political at that point. But it's you know, yeah. it's it's. Why do you feel that we have as an industry? You know, I mean, we we have a massive part to play in compensating for that, do we not? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. But I think that <clears throat> I think the way we I think the way we're going about it, you know, as an industry is a little bit is a little bit incorrect. You know, and, and what I mean by that is that. Um, we all we all know and acknowledge that um, schooling is massively underfunded when it comes to arts programs, yeah. right? Um, and it's being defunded all the time. Uh, and what we what we're trying to do is we're trying to lobby the government into um, creating change, and that's not going to happen. That isn't really going to happen, right? So what we've got to do, I think, is work at a much more sort of grassroots level where we are responsible. Um, Individually, as agencies, as as you know, as artists, as you know, you know, uh, as authors, as you know, whatever that is, um, to to work with schools directly. So that's what we're doing. You know, with a school that's very close to actually, it's where it's where I first grew up in Southall here, uh, called Villiers. And yeah, we're you know we're we're taking that upon ourselves to help change things from the grassroots up. You know, so we're going there. We're speaking to a lot of these amazing um, students. And telling them, look, you know, uh, I was you. Yeah. I sat there. You know, my parents are your parents, you know. And um, I know that a lot of, uh, you know, and, and Southall is a very ethnically diverse area. In fact, actually, it's, it's very predominantly um, Somali, Indian, Pakistani uh, as, a, as an area. And I know those parents in the 40 years it's taken me to go from being, you know, a student to, you know, this this life. Not a lot's changed, you know, and so those parents still think like there is no, you know, that there is no um, career, no future in art, you know, or in design. They don't, they don't see that. So they want all their children to do, you know, the classic subjects of, you know, accountancy or, you know, so it's maths, science, and and I get that, I get that, but I want to prove to them that there is, you know, um, value in in creativity huge value in creativity and actually there are there's great money if that's the motivator which it is for these children's parents you yeah. know because all they want to do is see their children succeed that's really what they want to do they think that comes from studying dentistry or accountancy you know or law and it, and it does to some degree but man those subjects are so fucking boring right it's like <laughs> we don't we don't we need more artists not more accountants 
You, you know what I mean? It's, no, we do. We absolutely yeah. do. Yeah, because and you know it's really important. It's really important. And the reason being is that's not to devalue accountants, right? But frankly, accountants don't create anything. Artists create things. Those things become tangible. They become assets. They become they become movements. You know. So it's not a chicken and egg thing here. This is, you know, we create from scratch. We create something that has value. And then accountants come in and, and, you know, double that value or whatever that is, right? But they don't create it. You have to create It's really, really important. You know, a life, you know, you can live without accountants. Trust me. Yeah. We can live without accountants. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen, but we can't live without artists. We can't. No, it was it was John Newbegin, who was the chair of Creative England, and I interviewed him really, I think it was the fourth episode of his, no, fifth episode of his podcast. Yeah, yeah. Going back a while now, right after they'd announced the EBAC. And he wrote this brilliant kind of, uh, you know, return fire in The Guardian. And, and so I got onto him and managed to grab an interview. And he, t- he said there'd been this study in Bristol, and essentially I think they'd looked at for between four and 500 businesses, and invariably every single time the ones that grew three times faster than the others were the ones that had equal balance and equal respect for arts, technology, and business. Because yeah, it's, sure. again, it's, it's diversity of a different form and, and it balances. And, you know, he, the way he put it was, if you've just got the artists, you might have the ideas, but not the actionability. If you've just got the tech guys, it's going to be nuts and bolts. If you've yeah. just got the accountancy guys, it's all about the bottom line. You need the cross-pollination and that's a life lesson in itself. I, I agree completely, and I kind of I kind of see the future, you know, in you know somewhere of a of a mix, a sort of myriad between sort of tech, technology, and creativity. Mm-hmm. That's that's where things that that's where it's going. If you can if you can harness those two things, you know, that's gonna that's gonna create the next big innovation that's gonna affect us hopefully positively. You know that that's where it's gonna come from. You know, it's it's about that. But yeah, but also you know let, let's not let's take let's take money money out of this you know out of this let's just talk about self-worth and let's talk about health and well-being and you know you know our creativity has a massive role to play in our lives from just a wellness perspective you know it's just whether you're monetizing it and make you know and doing well or not or just enjoying it right it's just so you know, you know, just just to be, you know, we talk about journaling, you know, I don't do it personally, but I'm, you know, that is, that's, that's a form of art. That's a form of creativity. It's writing down, you know, um, we talk, you know, we talk about people building things, writing things, making things, cooking things, but, you know, these are, these are really important things, you know, just from a, a wellness perspective, we need, we need art, we need to get lost in something other than our phones. And this, you know, this boredom spectrum, you know, um, there's a there's a brilliant book. Um, there's a brilliant book called The Creative Act. Do, do you know that? A way, Rick Rubin, uh, you see, I'm halfway, I'm halfway through it and it's fantastic. Oh, it's brilliant. Man, it's a great, it's a great book because I was, I was one of these people that always, I always thought there was two kinds of people. I thought they were, they were sort of academics and they were artists. But as I got older, I realized that actually we are, we're kind of all artists. We're all sort of born creative. Yeah. And then, you know, through through different structures in our lives, it could be parents, it could be schooling, it could be, you know, the education, whatever that is, it's sort of knocked out of you, you know, and then, you know, and so you follow these other paths. But actually, you know, and I always thought there were two kinds of people, and it's not. I think we're all creative at heart, you know, and that's really important, whether you take that up as a career or you take that up as a passion outside yeah. of work. It's, in, it's incredibly important. And that book, for me, 
just cements that you know so it's always been my belief and it's kind of it's kind of been you know um sanctioned by by the great rick rubin in you know in that book and it's you know it's it's incredible you know but um yeah so that that's the thing even just take the money out of it you know and the yeah there's this kind of purity in that you know and um the wellness and the health that comes with it is is so important yeah i had speaking of tomorrow's guest it's one of the heaviest shows i've done but it's with a friend of mine olya protasova who's ukrainian and um she's a part of design activist community you know, they're, to, with the, they're at war and, and but the defiance and the fight and the resilience of those people and the way that the creative community have pulled together yeah. in, in some ways still using the art and design to tell the story of what's going on. But then sure. in other ways, you know, she talks about furniture makers who are now making the kind of hedgehog anti-tank furniture in the street. And it's that's just references that I cannot you know, I can't start to understand that because yeah, I'm very fortunate. But but the the fire and the way that they continue to create and her beliefs that they have to keep creating is just, it's something else. And it speaks exactly to what you've just said, Gush, about the, you know, the, 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 the innate need to create that we have as human beings. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially when it's stifled and we're told we can't. Yeah. You know, and it's other things are prioritized over it. You know, there's even more need to do that, you know? Um, and it's that whole thing with doing, doing more with even less, yeah, you know, less technology, less materials. You know, that's when that's when creativity really kicks in. You know, when yeah. you've got very little to to kind of go on. You know, and it's like, like I say, you know, artists are, you know, and creativity. You know, it's it's important for society. You know, as I was saying before, you know, there are civilizations where the artists were up there with the the philosophers and the scholars and heralded, yeah. you know, um, the greats. You know, yeah, the and, Greeks, ancient Greeks. It's, it's just, ab, ab, yeah, ab, absolutely, man. You know, it was, it was that. You know, and so, yeah, I believe, you know, yeah, it it has an important part. To, you know, we can't underestimate the play, the the part it has to play. You know, in terms of society and you know, and and politics and movement as well. You know, which yeah. is, I think, your your interview tomorrow is going to be uh, partly based on. I think so. I think to make positive change moving forward, given yeah. everything that's that's going on at the moment, I think we have to be subversive. We have to be clever, and we have to use, you know, um, we have to be smart basically and use the arts to to its fullest. I think if we're gonna, you know, if we're gonna make this positive change, it needs to happen. Uh, you know, big believer in that. Um, so what's so? what's the vision now I, you know i mean I, i'm not i'm not going to say what's the motivation because you've you've pretty much already told me and the people and the culture and yeah you know, the business obviously a very successful agency um what what's next you know what what's what's what is for you what what's the daily driver yeah it's a couple of things so 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 now it's about um it, it's really about working with our teams you know and working with the the, the individuals here you know and uh, and globally to ensure they understand the difference that is bulletproof from a cultural perspective creative perspective so it's spending more time with with the teams then it's about the bigger role of design and creativity within our school system and um and education you know, and so I really think if we want to if we want to create diversity in the future, real real diversity, you know, it's got to start from a school, you know, level up. You know, this is not it doesn't start at university. It starts at school, you know, school level up. And so what, what I want to do is try and spend a bit more time on and connect my my background 
how I grew up with the passion that I have for, you know, creativity and design and try and inspire and try and create a bit of change at a grassroots level within uh, a school, you know, a couple of schools, and then try and take that up to a, a further level where we can influence more, you know, more of an educational system so that we do ensure the future of um, of creative thought, of creative expression in, in, in London, especially in the UK, as well as wider afield, uh, is as diverse and as creative as possible. So that really, you know, that really, we can't create a diverse thinking without a diverse community you just, you just can't have that you know mm-hmm. uh, and so i really want to encourage children that you know where i was when i was sort of you know growing up 13 14 years i, I really wanted to encourage them to try and think about a career in you know in design or in art and i want to be able to prove to their parents some of it's about sitting down with their parents actually and and saying look i'm a kid like yours like you grew up with not a lot and you can achieve a lot actually through, you know, through this. So it's about that. So I think the, the business is in good hands. We're in, I've got an amazing team of people. And so it's about studying that and growing that as we, as we will. It's about ensuring that the culture remains as strong as the creative, which is um, priority here, you know, and then it's about that educational piece, you know, just so that mm. the future talent, which we will probably, I probably won't see, you know, in terms of the next generation of creatives coming through. But, you know, in terms of my agency life, maybe. But I think it's incredibly important, you know, to to yeah. do that. You know, um, I think we all know this story and I've got the same story of, of a one, you know, of a teacher or an individual that that spoke to us in a grown up way and changed our paths, you know for the better you know yeah. and so i'd like to be that person for an individual or a team or a class or a school you know so i think it's and I, and I do talk i do bring in part you know other people from my team who come from again different backgrounds to me different age to me but you know to also be relatable to yeah. uh, to the children as we speak you know and so that yeah i'm, I'm very passionate about that yeah me too it's a, it's a real bit coming in increasingly yeah big cause you know it has with the books this podcast it's very much very much that um yeah absolutely man. it's essential so yeah last thing i wanted to ask you there are three pledges um are great, sure. by the way and so i wanted to you know agencies can play a big part in positive change i believe um do you think you know by having an honest dialogue with clients you know is there room there to help influence change even for the decisions those clients make because i I have friends who have stories to this end and one example that always stays with me is a friend who was working with a property developer and you know she was a part of the meeting and they sat down and they were making you know thinking about all the considerations in this new development business development and one thing she flagged up that they hadn't thought about at all was the was the neighbors and the people who lived close by and they were very willing to listen. They just they simply hadn't thought of it for whatever reason. And when she raised it at that table, she thought she was sticking her neck out. But the fact that she did created a positive change there. Is that something that you did within, you know, the behavior of the agency you have with your clients? Do you have that kind of honest dialogue? Yeah, we do. We're, we're, we're really fortunate that our clients, that we work, you know, um, we work at the very top tier with our clients, you know. So we have a seat at the table alongside the uh, – so we have the brand seat alongside the above-the-line agencies and the media buying partners. So, yeah, they're very they're very open to that, you know. And they, I think that 
at a certain point you become a consultancy yeah. you know and it's your it's your it's your duty to consult and to put you know put opinion forward which is for uh you know change for good or to drive you know something a different agenda so yeah we're very fortunate the clients we work with um you know we we work with three main clients you know and um Mondelez, uh, Diageo Nestle mm -hmm. and they are incredibly open you know to uh, our opinion on things you know new ways of working new technologies um new uh structures or substrates which have better environmental impact or less environmental impact you know uh, so yeah they're, they're always open to that you know they're they're also open to the idea that um if we are if we're doing something in the latam part of the world you know we need to be working with artists from that region so we're not appropriating work mm -hmm. and making it look like so you know they're, they're really open to that and actually they encourage us to think like that as well and i think that's the best the best partnerships like the best relationships you know it's it's a give and take is the encouragement to so they do empower us for that you know and they expect that from us you know and and so we're we're lucky that we have that and they listen you know um and and yeah it's it's already starting to you know to um to affect change yeah that's great to hear and um and and you know i think again it goes down to the courage and the heart and the hustle doesn't it the the you know yeah. the, the the balls to just to be real and to and to have that dialogue in any way you know i think it's i think i think you think you get better work and better creativity out of it as well you do also you get to you know what it is it's that realization right that we're just we're just all human beings yeah and it's that thing where I might speak to the vice president of Lego, right? But when he or she leaves that office, that beautiful glass tower, wherever it is, and they go down the high street to buy a sandwich from Pret, no one knows they're the vice president of this or that. You know, they're just another person. And that's that's the thing. And once you understand that, and then you understand, you know, what 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 their motivators and what they what they're trying to do. If you can tap into that very, you know, if you can kind of take all that armor out of it, yeah. you know, then it becomes just a very real conversation, you know. And it's like it's like I always say, you know, I'm the owner of this business. No one cares, man. No one, no one cares. I don't have any ego. I don't think that I have any privileges over anyone else. So I don't treat it like that, mm -hmm. you know. And that's how I treat my my clients. I treat them with lots of respect, you know, a little a little bit of love. But if they're if they're you know, but but with complete honesty, as yeah. well. You know, complete transparency and complete honesty. It's like any relationship, you know. And so I think as soon as you understand that, you know, and you and you both have the betterment of that business or that brand at heart, then I think that encourages an open dialect, right? An honest dialect, and they will listen always. You know. Yeah. It really does. And um, you've just reminded me of a great story by a, a good friend of mine, Andy Cotterill, music photographer, who did a big project with. And he, the first person he ever shot was Chuck D for Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Was, um, All right. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, I, the, the, the gist of our conversation for this podcast was about photographing these larger than life characters. And Andy has yeah. just a, a way of disarming people. He's very warm, very open, very genuine. And he yeah, spends yeah. the first half of any allotted interview time with his camera down and turned off. Yeah, sure. Just to tap into them and, and, and try talking. to understand talking. something. Just talking. Yeah. Yeah. And and he said that he said, look, mate, he said, I grew up with my mother 
you said my mother is real that he's realer than chuck d and i just that's always yeah. stayed it's always stayed with me you know <laughs> that's, that's great man yeah that's great but it is those it's those things it's those very human things you know it's like every meeting we do at bulletproof every meeting we do we kick off with it's uh how are you what's going on how so and so you know what happened to we do that everyone who's in our reception area you walk past and everyone will say are you okay if you are you being looked after you know have you got a cup of tea have you got a it's those really basic things you know that you make people feel welcomed and you, you know and at home even if you know it, and it, even if it eats into the meeting it doesn't matter those aren't those aren't you know for, those aren't the informal things those these are really important things you know that you know that build the right community right and can can lead a conversation in a different way they they're really really important so it's one of the first things we do in any meeting we have is just ask how someone is or comment on this or that that they that they're wearing or it's just great you know it's very it's these very simple things that allow people to talk more openly and transparently you know and i think that's what your friend your friend has done throughout this army you know and so yeah. um again it's just this is about community man it's about society you know that's the thing you know it's um it's it's a people business most businesses are yeah you know? and that's and you can never lose sight of that you know yeah that's great advice well, I think I've covered everything, Gush. This has been a, a joy. So thank you oh, uh, thanks again, man. ever so much for your time, man. Thank you. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure, man. Huge thank you to everyone of you listeners for taking the time to join me today for this episode with the fabulous Gush Munday, who gave me an hour or so of his time from a busy schedule to truly inspire me and embolden me in a, you know, in another way, just like all these guests do and why I love doing this show so much. I hope you took some inspiration from that and certainly that adversity that Gush has had to manage over his time as the founder of Bulletproof. Um, it is beggar's belief that that stuff used to happen, the racism and the bullying and but, but the man's spirit to overcome that and to found Bulletproof and to use that chip on his shoulder to really transform it into something beautiful and positive is just utterly, utterly inspiring. So I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. Please do take some time to review, subscribe and share the show because I'm really going at it this year. Weekly, every Wednesday, 5am tell a friend and if you're new to the show welcome and please do just take a moment to get familiar with the history of the show because there i've tried even with the kind of time sensitive event-based episodes in the earlier parts of the podcast when it used to be a rest or mimics i've always kept the archive up there so you can jump into that journey and flow down that particular river and it was always with longevity in mind i tried to do my interviews so that they're timeless so that there's stories being told are ways that you can flesh out your own creative toolkit. And more and more, what I'm trying to do with this show is just explore human creativity and provide so many examples and stories for people that they understand and embrace creativity and truly get under the skin of what theirs might be and uh, make it something special. So thank you for listening, guys. Thank you to the founding sponsor of the show. Wouldn't be here without them, no doubt about that. IllustrationX.com, go and check out their global range of illustrators and animators. Now, we've got Nagin Farsad coming up on the show talking about her psychedelic retreat in Jamaica. It's going to be a wild one. We've got Alex Pask, Judica, who fought at the highest level and talks to us about flow states and optimal creativity. That's a blinder too. We've got the BDF boys, that's Birmingham Design Festival, Luke Tong, Daniel Ancorn, so much more. I'm very excited. Join me. See you later, guys. Take care. Have a good week.